series entitled Work as Worship. Work as Worship. Work is the task mandated to us by God. If you remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read how God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to care for it. So work is the task mandated to us by God, not just in our career choice, but also in regards to various roles that we have within our lives, whether it be grandparent, whether it be husband, wife, parent, child, employee, employer, all of these things apply. But work is the role that we have been entrusted by God as a gift to us for a specific purpose, whether it might be to provide a service for others or to care for those that are in our lives. Worship. Worship is the acknowledgement, the recognition, the praise, the adoration of our God as our Father, as our Savior, as our friend. That's what worship is. It is not limited to just singing that we do on a Sunday, but it is something that is demonstrated Monday through Saturday. We celebrate on Sunday and and how we live. Worship is demonstrated in every aspect of our lives, which I think we often forget because in the Old Testament, where did they go to worship? They went to the temple. They worshipped at the temple. They gave offerings of praise and of sacrifice, of prayer. They offered it all up to God at the temple. Where is the temple for the church? The temple is us, we are told in Corinthians. Therefore, worship takes place within us every moment of every day in all our interactions with others. Therefore, work as worship basically means then whatever role that we have is an opportunity for us to worship God, to acknowledge Him as Lord, to praise Him as Savior, to entrust ourselves to His power and to His guidance, no matter where we are and no matter what role we have. The whole purpose Jesus saved us came and saved us is not so we could be content and live in our own little lives, isolated from everybody else, but rather to shine, rather to acknowledge and magnify him to all that we encounter. And what I wanted to do today is invite a sister up to share with us some of the things that God is doing through her and her workplace. So if you could make our sister Carrie Tan... Welcome, please. Uh, Put your hands together to invite our sister, Carrie Tan, please. I I sent out some questions, and so I'm going to take maybe seven to ten minutes. She says it'll be shorter, but she's a teacher. It'll be longer. (laughs) So my first question to you, my sister, is what do you do, and how long have you done this for? Um, I'm a primary school teacher. I teach kindergarten to year six. Um, currently, I'm teaching a year five class, and I've been teaching all up for 12 years. 12 years. 12 years a teacher. It's like 12 years a slave. But anyway, that's, uh, that's another story completely. Um, so my next question then is, why this career? Why a teacher? Okay. Compared to a lot of other jobs, I really wanted to be hands-on with people. Hands on, hands off. <laughs> um, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> no, the kids are kids are just such a 
blessing to be able to mould and shape. Um, and I didn't want to work with computers. I didn't want a desk job. I wanted something that was more interactive with people and investing in people. That's very noble. Very noble of you, sister. So my question now, like, cause how long have you been a Christian for? If you don't mind me asking, um, this is not one of the questions. Oh, that's a good question. I, I only started coming to church in 2001, and it was probably a couple of years later that I gave my life to Christ. Okay, yeah. very cool. So my question then regarding your profession is how then does your faith affect your conduct within the profession of your choice? That's a really good question. Because um, it's really hard to be a Christian in the workplace when we have restrictions on what we can share, um, including our faith. Um, so, for example, we're not allowed to talk to kids about our faith. We're not supposed to. Um, and if we talk to our workmates, it's kind of like the people that you work with for the whole year at least. And um, you kind of don't want to make things awkward. So, it's, you know, it's really hard to see where you can build that relationship with and when you can share so, um, and there are a few, only a few Christians in the workplace, I'd say. Um, yeah, and that makes it quite tough. Well, you've actually already answered the next question oh. regarding restrictions. No, that's good. Yeah. That's good. So I guess then for you, um, how do you think, or like, what are the ways then you can make an impact for the gospel considering all the restrictions that are placed upon you in your job? Yeah. Um, I try to take opportunities to talk to my workmates um, outside of school because there's just no time in school, let alone before school. Um, and often it would be... It's easier to share one-on-one um, -on -one or in a smaller group. Um, in a big group setting, I think everyone just wants to de-stress and either have a yarn about the kids or, um, you know, talk about work challenges. Um, it's really hard to sort of slip in, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian, how can I pray for you? Um, that's actually quite difficult. So when it's a smaller setting, it's more intimate and I'm able to share in that way. But you have to be intentional about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think there's a really key point there, like you said the word intentional. I think that's yeah. to be aware of what's going on around you. I think that's really cool. So this isn't one of the questions that I put down for you. This is off the cuff because okay. of what you've been sharing. Um, how do you deal or how does your faith, because I know that there have been some things going on, how do you deal as a Christian with some of the difficulties that you face just personally in the workplace? Yeah. Um, this year was probably the hard, well, it has been the hardest teaching year for me um, in terms of the kids, the parents, um, the workload, um, trying to juggle all that. So I've been really blessed to be in this church and have um, my cell group pray for me, um, my pastor pray for me, my brothers and sisters pray for me. Um, that's been really encouraging because there are times where kind of I feel so exhausted, I can't pray for myself, and it's nice to have my family intercede for me. That's awesome. Yeah. So is there anything specific that we can pray for you then? As, because in all honesty, you, you have Monday to Friday, and I know you have to work Saturday, Sunday, because yeah. you're a school teacher and your work never stops. Yeah. So how then can we best support you in your job, in the mission field that you have as a primary school teacher and with everything that's going on? How can we as your church family best support you in your context now? Um, wisdom is probably something that I ask for the most in terms of how to deal with the children, to deal with the parents, to deal with my... Um, or even what to say to my work colleagues and, um, yeah, just be set apart as opposed to being a part of that work culture where we're under a lot of stress. Um, I also want to ask for um, prayer for endurance. You know, um, it's not an easy ride having 
one class for a whole year, um, especially if it's a difficult class. Um, and oh, what was the question again? Just yeah, you, no, you, I think you pretty much answered right. it. Just how can we pray for you? How can we support yeah, you? Yeah, um, and also um, I think it's really important not just to pray for the teachers, but for um, the parents and the families. I think that in today's culture we have a lot of broken families and um, a lot of families that work. Um, much longer hours and they don't really spend time with their kids. So we are, um, as teachers, like the main contact f- uh, with the kids. Um, but I really do pray, um, ask you to pray for the parents that um, you help them to build good relationships with their kids and, yeah, just to guide them and not neglect their role as and privilege as a parent. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. We, we're going to pray for you now, sister. So if you just want to stretch your hands out, I want to pray for... Pray for our sister Carrie as she heads out to the mission field tomorrow, back to the grind, and we'll pray for her now. Father, we thank you so much for the sharing from our sister Carrie at this time, and thank you for her honesty. Thank you for the way that you're working within her now, even through all the hardships, through all the difficulties, the fact that she's going through a hard time now. I pray that she'll find her peace, her comfort, her strength, her endurance upon you and you alone. Father, I pray for us as a family, as a spiritual family, that we will support her not only in prayer, but even just in relationship, to come alongside our sister and to support her with a listening ear or a shoulder to lean on or just a a little bit of wisdom here or there. We pray for her now that you will give her wisdom as she goes back to work tomorrow, that as she goes to work, you will give her the wisdom to be able to deal with difficult students, um, with difficulties of being a Christian within a workplace that is very anti-Christian in a lot of ways. Father, I pray that you'll give her the wisdom to say the right things at the right times and when to withhold and not say the things that need to be said. So I pray that you'll give that to her. I pray, Father, for the kids that she looks after, that they will respond well to the love that shines forth from her because that love is from you. I pray, Father, that you'll be able to help her to be able to reach out to the parents as well, that through her she'll be able to shine as a light in this dark, dark place. So, Father, we commit her to your hands now. I pray that you will bless her, you will strengthen her, you will equip her, and you will use her for your glory, for not only the proclaiming of your gospel in conduct, but also in the intimate times of speech with the one-on-ones with her fellow teachers. So we commit it to you now, and we thank you for her in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much. Give a round of applause, please, brothers and sisters. So we are going to, over the next few weeks, have various individuals come up where we get to hear what God is doing in the workplace and where we get to actually pray for them. I would encourage you to come alongside Carrie at some time and just to pray for her individually. Um, There are a whole lot of teachers. There's Evelyn, there's Eva. uh, There's a whole bunch of teachers here as well. I mean, they do some hard yards. And I'm I'm not minimizing anything else that anybody else does, but at the moment, if you've got some teachers here that you know, pray for them. Just pray for them. Come alongside and pray for them. Encourage them. Write them a note. Send them a text. Call them throughout the week. The reason why I want to start off with this is because we have, by the grace of God, been taken out of darkness, we are told, from the verse that Mel Yap shared today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we have been taken out of darkness and placed within his marvelous light. Why? So that we might show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and put us in that light. See, we have been taken out of darkness to shine. We have been taken out of darkness to illuminate those around us with the gospel that transforms lives. We're not here for ourselves anymore. We are told that within the scriptures, that we are told now that we live for him who loved us and gave himself for us. 
which means then if we have been given this new goal in life to live for him who loved us and gave himself for us, it means that maybe we would have to reprioritize what we truly value in our lives now. Because our God gave everything for us. And the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, he not only gave the best that he had, he gave everything he had upon a cross so that we might be made new. So that we could have all the, the, like all the wretchedness, all the sinfulness, all the, all the things we dislike about ourselves. Because you know your heart, and I know my heart. All our deceitfulness, the, the things that entrapped us, the, the thing that kept us in bondage and captivity, the thing that condemned us to an eternity of hell, he took care of in his son Jesus Christ. And that through faith in him, we have been set free from all of that. And now that we've been set free... We have now, we, we now, I guess you could say, we now stand out. We stand out from the flow that this world goes down, the direction this world takes. We stand contrary to that. So I'm going to pray very quickly because we are going to carry on and on today as we look at that work as worship regarding the attitudes we have and how we can learn from the examples set for us within the scriptures how we can best represent Jesus in our context. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our sister Carrie. Thank you for the way you're using her, and I thank you for the way you have saved us. Lord Jesus, you have a name that is above all names. You have a name that salvation can only be found in. You have a name that, that now flies over us, that we belong to you. Father, we thank you so much for that. And I pray you may help us to hear your word speak to us no matter what context, no matter what age, no matter where we're at, that you will speak to us now and challenge us about how we prioritize things within our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I recently learned a word. I learned a word recently, and the word is hubris. Not spruik. I learned spruik today. I learned spruik today. Hubris. I learned the word hubris. And hubris means excessive pride, excessive self-confidence, and arrogance. Some would say that describes me. I would beg to differ. I'm close, but anyway. But here's what's interesting about this word. Uh, we started last week looking at the life of Daniel. And we looked at the attitude Daniel had. That Daniel and his friends, they were people without influence. They were people without power. And yet, God in his mercy, God in his grace, was able to utilize these men in their humility, in their weakness, to make a massive impact in the community that they had been placed in. And so what happens is this. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream, and he's freaking out over this dream. Uh, if you read in Daniel chapter, two, uh, chapter, yeah, Daniel chapter 2, and then we're going to look at Daniel chapter 3 today, but if you read in Daniel chapter 2, he sends out this massive charge to all his wise men, all his sages, all his so-called magicians, and basically says to them, I've had this dream, tell me what the dream is. You need to explain this dream. All these guys basically sit there and say, well, you tell us what the dream is, sir. And we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, being the man that he is, says, no. No. Because if this is going to be a legitimate interpretation, you have to tell me what the dream is. Then when you tell me what the dream is, tell me what the dream means. If you don't, I'm going to kill you. All. And that's basically the thing that's laid down. That's a pretty full-on thing. 
That's a pretty full-on thing. And so Daniel, and you read, I think it's, uh, the, the challenge is laid down in Daniel chapter 2, verse 5. Daniel goes, tells everybody, tells his boys, sorry, not his boys, tells his friends, pray. We will pray, we will fast. And then when Daniel approaches Nebuchadnezzar, he says, this is what your dream is. And this is the dream. He talks about how there's this massive statue with a head of gold, a body of silver, brass, iron, and then iron and clay. And he explains it all, what it all is. He explains it all to him and says, this is what it is. The golden head represents your rule, your kingdom. Now, hubris is when Nebuchadnezzar then takes Daniel's interpretation and makes an idol. But the idol is not like what his dream portrays. His idol is that of pure gold. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, we read, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. What this did was represented that his kingdom was not going to last just for a little bit of time. It was going to last through all time. He was basically saying, I am and my kingdom will last forever. That's hubris. That's excessive self-confidence, excessive arrogance, which is a big change from chapter 2, verse 5, where he's sitting there going, what does the dream mean? Asking for help when it's given to him. This is what takes place. So proud of his self that he couldn't keep it contained, but sought to demand of everybody within the land to acknowledge his greatness, his rule, his superiority. Basically, he was setting himself up as being the ultimate ruler. And if you read from Daniel chapter 3, verses 2 to 6, here we read this. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, that is what you are commanded to do. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, you may be asking yourself, how does this associate with the work as worship idea? To which my response is, more than you think. More than you think. We work in arenas whereby the ability and freedom to stand upon godly values and biblical truths are viewed as narrow-minded, prejudicial, and bigoted. Society as a whole is being forced to bow down, as it were, to golden idols that this world has built in the place of the one true God. And when we don't bow down, well, then we're called to suffer for it. So we have idols like this, the idols of sexuality 
and sexual orientation. The idols of success and ambition. The idols of political identity and political correctness. We are called to bow down to the golden idols of celebrity and fame, of intolerant tolerance and unconditional conditions. Basically, we have been, like the subject under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, been called to fall down and worship these images of gold. And when we don't, we have the penalty of death. It might be the death of opportunities in your job, the death of reputation, the death of being in the know, perhaps even like the death of friendships or various relationships that, is, that you have. This is, this is something that is occurring more and more as the climate of today's culture is uh, getting more aggressive toward the kingdom of Jesus. They are ready and willing to, fall, to throw people into the blazing furnace of the court of popular opinion, slamming anyone that stands up and refuses to bow to their golden idols, to bow down to their gods. And I, you, you, if you watch the news, you see this. And one such case, and I've spoken with Jimmy and Ali about this, one such case is this guy, Israel Folau. This is something that's happened to him. He posted an image referencing to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which says this, Do you not know that wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, nor, uh, sorry, will inherit the kingdom of God. And he, he set this up on his Twitter account, and it was, this is it here. He says, hell awaits you, followed by repent, only Jesus saves, and concluded with this biblical reality, Jesus Christ loves you and has given you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. Now, I remember actually talking with Ed on, about this as well. Now, what I find interesting and what has been overlooked in the mainstream media today is that this particular post of Israel Folau was not some fanatical Christian standing up on a cyberspace pulpit throwing out condemning words to people. This was a post that was in response to a question asked of him, which nobody has ever made reference to. Somebody publicly asked him this question, what does Christianity and the Bible say about homosexuals? about homosexuality. So being asked in a public setting, he responded publicly with a biblical truth. And what happened? Because he refused to bow down to the golden idols of his day when the music started, they threw him into the fiery furnace of society's anger, where he's viewed as bigoted, where he's viewed as prejudicial, where he's viewed in all of those ways. But the reality, if somebody asked me that question, I would respond the same way. Maybe not post it online. Um, this is something I just want to let you guys know. If you're actually on social media, don't have your big theological discussions via, via social media. That's the dumbest thing you can do. No offense. I'm not, if, you do, if you do, I'm really sorry. I don't, I don't want to do that. But the, the reason is, is, if people already have an idea or a mindset or a presupposition, when they ever, whatever they read, even though you write it in the, in the nicest of intent, whatever they read will be viewed from their specific feeling. 
That's it. And they'll interpret it that way, and then they'll turn that around on you. So don't ever have these conversations via, via online. It's really ridiculous. It's much better to dialogue with people. Remember last week we spoke about it. The response that is given is for the purpose of dialogue, of interaction, of discussing, because you can't pick up tone in this. You can't pick up the fact that he cares for and loves people. So what did it burn up? It burned up his career. He lost his job. Burned up his future. Burned up his popularity. It burned up his income. It burned up his supposed friendships. It burned up all of these things. Now, I'm not trying to weigh in on any political ideas, ideologies, or anything like this. I'm not going to worry about my opinions. All I'm going to say is this. If this happened to this popular person, it's going to happen to you. This is something that we need to be aware of. It's going to happen to you because you stand upon a set of values that is in direct contradiction to what the world promotes today. You value, you value biblical marriage. That's intolerant to what society says. You value sex between a man and woman within the bonds of marriage. You value that as followers of Jesus Christ. That's, that's completely against what society teaches. Therefore, you're discriminating. We, we do this. This is what we have because of who we hold to, and especially if we choose not to bow down to the cultural views, especially when the music starts. So this is the context in which these guys find themselves in. What do they do? How do they handle it? In verses 7 and 12, we read this. These three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now jump to verse 12. These are the, these guys' enemies. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you set up. So, I want to just provide something here. In verse 12, notice where these three young men are now. These three young men who with Daniel in chapter 1 went from being people of no power and of no influence who respectfully and who humbly interacted with their captors, which resulted in them not only going from a dialogue with their captors, it ended up putting them in a position of leadership. These are now people of influence. These people, these people now who represent God have something to say and can say something and be heard. But you know what happens when you make such a stand for the things of God and God shows favor to you in the eyes of those who don't know him? Well, the enemy attacks. Because you notice it's these, three guys, it's these three guys who stand against the flow. Everyone bows, they stand, and they are brought attention to, not by the king himself, but by their enemies. This is what happens. We are told in John 10, what? That the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. We are told that. We are told that the enemy hates the things of God. You belong to God. The enemy hates you. And if you want to make a stand, that is going to be used against you. Now, through their resolve to be faithful to God, 
They respectively, respectively, should I say, voiced their concerns and responded in reasonable dialogue. They went from people of no influence to people of, su- of some influence. And, if peop- and as people of influence, they are now targets of others because they don't like the way they conduct themselves. Now, I want to show three things. What allowed them to show such resolve? What allowed them to go against the tide of popular opinion and stand against the pressure of everybody else's actions? Um, if you've seen, I've seen on, on YouTube, and I remember seeing years ago, um, just how we are so easily swept up with what everybody else does. And I remember seeing this game show in Japan, it was on YouTube, where this lady was walking, and then a whole bunch of people came walking around her, and then everybody dropped to the ground. And so what did that lady do? She dropped to the ground as well. Automatically influenced by everybody else and what they were doing. Um, they did one in Australia where they hopped, I shared this years ago, I remember, that they, they hopped into an elevator, and there was five people in the elevator all facing the back. And one person who just came in was like, oh. And so he closed the door and he's facing the front. Over time, he felt so awkward. You know what he did? He turned around and faced the back with everybody else. It shows how we, as people, are influenced by what other people do. So the fact that these three young men were able to stand strong while everybody else bowed down is testament not only to who they were as young men, but their their relationship with their God. They were swayed not by the court of popular opinion, but by their relationship with their God. So how did they do it? Here, I'm going to give you three things of how they did it. One, they knew what was right according to God's word. They knew what was right according to God's word. Not according to the current culture, not according to their personal interpretation, not according to their personal traditions, but according to God's standard according to God's promises, not their own. And it flies. Here's the thing. God's word flies in the face of almost everything that goes around today. Because what's the big thing today? God's truth. You proclaim God's truth, people automatically attack you. This is the the most common view that you've probably heard. Well, Joe, what's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. Or, as Oprah Winfrey once said, you live your own truth. Two stupid statements. Because truth is truth. It doesn't matter whether you think it's true or not. That's what the the word... Whether you choose to believe this is the word of God or not doesn't change the fact that it is. That doesn't change. Whether you choose to believe and accept whether the promises of God are true or not does not change the fact that it is. What we think about something doesn't change the reality of what it is. And this is the problem that a lot of society has today, and sadly, what a lot of Christians have today, because one, they don't really know what the Word of God says, and neither have they experienced the reality of God's Word transforming their lives. They don't know the faithfulness of God's promises more often than not because they don't know God's promises. They don't know the faithfulness of God because they've never put themselves in a situation to see God's faithfulness evidenced in their lives. I asked you guys last week to pray for somebody once a day. Once a day for seven days. That seven days is today. 
which means tomorrow, are you going to step out by faith and allow God to fulfill his promise in your life? I was working on Friday and I went to go see, I was praying for a guy at, at, at work, at school. So I was praying for him and I went and saw him. And I was like, Lord, I'd, I've been praying for him. Lord, can, can you just, maybe we can catch up a little bit. And so I'm, I go out to the basketball court at recess and I play basketball because I can. And so I'm standing there and who happens to be the church on duty? That guy. So he comes up. And he goes, Joe, I said, bro. And we're talking. And then in our conversation, I was like, so bro, tell me, what is your view on the whole God thing? And oh, he let rip. He let rip. He told me his views on God, what he thinks on Christianity, on Islam, and, and on religion, on his view, and all that sort of stuff. And, and it, was, it was really good. I consider it a win in the sense that I know where he is now. I know where he's at. And now I'm going to keep on praying for him for another seven days. So when I see him again, I can say, hey, bro, we'll go from there. But I ended up from talking about that to, hey, Joe, do you marry people? I says, yeah, because he's getting married. And he asked me if I could do the wedding for him. I says, you know, it's going to be a Christian one, amen. He goes, yeah, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> and, 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 and my fiance, she's a Catholic, so I'm sure she'll be, she'll be okay with the religious stuff. I said, okay, yeah, bro, talk to her, man. I'll be keen, man. I would love to do that. And so it just, but that happened. That happened. But you don't know until you step out and see what God does. Step out on the truth of God's word. Now, this is what I find interesting. Uh, Blaise Pascal said this. People invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof or truth, but on the basis on, of what they find attractive. And that's, that's a perfect description of what, how people view truth today. People invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Those who claim there is no truth, as you always know, that in itself is a truth. But when the foundation is God's word, of God's truth, then what do we experience? Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord is true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The truth of God about your existence, about your purpose, about your state, a sinner in need of grace, about your destiny, hell or heaven, about your Savior, Jesus Christ, and about, uh, sorry, about, about anything about your existence remains the same whether you accept it or not. And what happens when you accept God's truth? We are converted. We, we, we are wise. We are rejoicing. We are enlightened. We are endure and persevere. They are true and they are righteous. This is what happens. The simple, the wise, rejoices the heart and lightens the eyes because it's true, because it's righteous, because it's desirable, because it is precious, and it is sweet to our being. That is what the truth of God's word is. So my first encouragement to you is know what is right according to what God says. 
immerse yourself in this. Immerse yourself in this so you know where you stand and why you stand. Because this is what these young men did. These young men knew where they stood. They knew they shouldn't bow down. We'll read that a little bit later on. Second thing is this. They understood the value of being God's people, the precious relationship that they shared. There is value in knowing who you are. See, they weren't like Esau. What did Esau do? Esau sold his birthright because he was hungry. He failed to revere and value what he had in his birthright. So when he gets back, he says, oh, I'm going to die. Give me some food. Give me your birthright. Yeah, right. They failed. He failed to, to see it. Or, nor were they like Samson, who chose to play games with the privileged position that he had, whether by say, saying riddles, whether by pranking his lady. In both cases, it came back to bite them. It cost Samson his hair and his eyes. It cost Esau his birthright. For these young men, they valued their God. Evident in verses 14 through to 18. We read this. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They, look at that. They said, my God is capable. My God is capable. He can deliver me from your hand. But if he doesn't, so what? We will not bow down. We won't bow down. We're not gonna, we are not going to give up what we have in our God because it costs too much for us to have it. Now think about this for a second. Now I remember challenging a person with this when they were telling me, what if, Joe, what if this, what if that? And I remember saying to this person, look, if I, if I turn my back, if I change my mind, if I turn my back on my faith, right, then obviously then my faith doesn't mean that much to me. Wouldn't you agree? If I got you to change on your one, would you feel the same way? They said, yeah. So then why do you expect me to do the same? Why do you expect me to compromise when you're not willing to compromise either? This is what these young men did. They understood the value of what they had. There's a, a willingness. There's a willingness displayed by these three young men to trust their God, whatever the outcome. That regardless of whether, whatever way it goes, so be it. Because their hearts are concerned with one thing, how their God sees them rather than the ease of a hassle-free life. How their God sees them is what concerned them. That's amazing, because I think, I, I sometimes forget that. 
oh, but these people may not like me. Oh, they may not accept me. Well, how does your God see you? And should not that matter more? Uh, If you're married, the person that you want to be accepted by and have the respect from and the recognition of is usually your spouse. That's your spouse, and it doesn't matter what other people think as long as you have the respect and, and, and the reverence and the relationship with your spouse. That takes priority, doesn't it? doesn't matter if your friends throw you out. Oh, you, you got your, you're under your wife's thumb. I don't care what you think, bro. So be it. I'd much rather be under her thumb than yours. It's a nice, it's a nice thumb. My wife has slender thumbs. You know what I mean? You know, I'd much rather, I'd much, because I'd much rather be accepted by her. So it is with my God. When I look at what he done, and I remember sharing this before, has not my God done more for me than my wife? My wife didn't die for me to save me from my sin. My wife didn't rise from the dead to take my sin away. My wife didn't make me acceptable to God. My Lord Jesus did. So therefore, if I'm willing to value and cherish my wife's relationship, should not then I also value and cherish, if not more, my relationship with my Savior? But this is what these guys understood. They understood the value of, you are God's chosen. We, he read this. Mel read this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are God's chosen. You are God's holy nation. You're God's royal priesthood. You are his special possession. That is what you are. That is who you are. And that's what your God has made you in Jesus Christ. Therefore, if that's who you are, should that not then be cherished? Which leads to the third one, and the third one I like. They had each other as well. I like this. They had each other as well. From a practical, from a practical perspective, have you ever noticed the easier it is to stand against the flow when you have others standing with you? This is why fellowship is so important. This is why church is so important. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we are exhorted, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because when we stand together, we can build each other up. When we stand together, we are stronger. When we stand together, we are able to overcome. And I remember sharing this when we looked at Ephesians chapter 6. is about being united and moving together as one with the same heart, with the same goal, with the same desire and not being distracted by the little things that upset us because we have the bigger picture involved of, of, of fulfilling God's call in our lives as a church to shine as a light. Now you remember the passage I shared from, uh, for Ben and Mel's wedding? Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 to 12. Now I know I use this in regards marriage, but <laughs> my, sister, my sister says to me, can I, Carrie says to me, oh, Joe, you, you shared that and now like, I have to get married now. No. And I was like, no, you don't, you don't. No, because this is about friendship. This is about support from friends that there are things you can't do on your own, but you have others around you. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And I can see Julie now when it says keep warm. Julie was about to go hug Kerry right now. I saw that. Okay, now, this is why the church is described as a body. It is why the church is described as ecclesia. The church means gathering. 
It's corporate. There's, there's many. It is why we refer to the people of God as the family of God. For when we are united as brothers and sisters, when we are united together as a family, supporting each other, it is no wonder when we are built in such a way that the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's why. That's why when Jesus says, I will build my church at the gates of hell, he's building us as a unit, as a body, as a family, as the church, so that we might press on for the kingdom of God together. I want to share with you a quote with Tony Evans, which I was really, it's a long quote, I'm going to read it to you, but it says this, he sums it well, and he talks about this in regards, his, he does a sermon on revival, and he says, there are certain things you have to go to God, uh, go to for God, uh, go to God for, um, for yourself, because you're God's house, and you have things you need him to do in your life, that is, in your land that is called your life. There are other things you could never get by yourself. One of the reasons why God wants individual temples to also participate in the collective temple called the church is that if you have an eight-cylinder need, but you are a four-cylinder saint, you need to pick up four more cylinders. It's something you need to do together. So there's some things you can get on your own, but there are other things you can't get on your own because it's bigger than you. That's why you need the body of Christ. If you are unwilling, and I, I, I was challenged with this, if you are unwilling to go to bat for, for another saint that has a need, then don't, sorry, I'm going to start that again because I want to spoil this. If you are unwilling to go to bat for another saint that has a need, then don't be surprised that God doesn't respond to you when you have your need because you are so selfish that I'm only going to use the church when I have a need, but I'm not going to be a part of the church to battle when somebody else has a need. Then don't be surprised that God turns you down because you think you're an only child in the family of God. That is confronting. It is our Father who art in heaven. Our Father. And it talks about us, the blessing to bless. We are blessed to bless. That's the importance of having us together. As it was in the united stand made upon the promises of God that allowed them to stand confidently in the face of the music, the important fact remains for us to do the same. And we have to understand this. We must expect trial. It's not all going to be easy. It is not all going to be easy. We are going to have difficulties. It is going to be hard, especially if you seek, if you seek to honor God and stand upon his heart and his values. I'm going to finish off with a couple of passages. This is what happens when these young men stand upon the presence of God, upon the person of God. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet. This is after they were thrown into the furnace. And asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The promises of God are evident in the midst of trials. 
you want to discover how great God is, that discovery can only be made in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the hardship, of you seeking to stand against the flow of what the culture says, of you being not influenced by what the rest of society is doing, but standing up for the things of God. And regardless of what happens, regardless, you may be cast out, you may lose your job, you may have your reputation destroyed, you may have a lot of things, you may lose friendships, that may actually happen. But the fact that you have honoured God in this, we are told within the Scriptures that to them that honour me, I will honour. And it may not necessarily be in this lifetime. It may not be in the here and now. It may be the glory that's stored up for you when you're in the presence of your Father when He says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe it might be then. So in the marketplace, there is a great temptation for us to bow down to the ideologies and views of the culture, to bow down and compromise godliness and righteousness for the sake of tolerance and political correctness. But perhaps we can instead, in our conduct, Follow the examples of these three young men that with God's word as our foundation, we will stand on what is right. That we truly value the relationship that we share as the children of our God with our Savior and to be surrounded with like-minded support and people, whether by prayer or by presence, to stand together as one. That even though the workplace isn't necessarily the friendly of places, Instead of viewing it as a burden, it is an opportunity for us to shine as a light, as a soul of the earth, as a city on a hill. So my challenge for you, brothers and sisters, shine. Shine bright. Shine strong. I want to close in a word of prayer. I'm not going to ask the music team to come up, but I will ask the prayer team to come up, please. Uh, if the prayer team, whoever is in the prayer team still around, if you could come forward. And we would love to pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We thank you so much for the way they stood because they understood what was right, because they cherished their relationship with you, and because they were like-minded with brothers and others around them that would support them, not only in prayer, but by their very presence. Father, I pray that we as your people will follow such an example, that we would heed and know what your word says, that we will stand upon such promises and truly value what you have made us in Jesus Christ, and that you, Father, would enable us to be there for one another as well, that we truly will be the family of God, your body united in vision and united in purpose. We ask for you to dismiss us now, and as we go from here, carry within us the, the precious gift that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, for your glory. Please bless the, this congregation. Please encourage us and give us the boldness to reach out to those around us and to, to stand strong and to stand firm in the Lord. Now unto you, who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. Unto you be all honor and glory within the church, both now and forever even to the end of the age. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters.